0: Well, good morning. All right, all right. a couple of announcements for you, very quickly here. First of all, uh, they're not here this service, uh, but I did want to reference them. Uh, Alan Karabek recently, uh, just this this past week on Wednesday, uh, were approved for membership at the church. They had asked for that and were granted it, and uh, so we just wanted to uh, let the church know that we're going to try to draw attention to people as they do that, so you have a chance just to connect a name and a face with a new member. And, uh, but Kara is our nursery coordinator, so you, if you have babies, you know her well. Uh, and um, So anyways, I just want to let you know that. If you see them and know them, just welcome them. It's uh, a membership at the church, and I would encourage you, uh, if that's something that uh, it interests you, you can talk with Pastor Keith on, on how you go about that. Uh, being a member of the church kind of lets you know a little more of some of the, uh, the workings of the church and also allows you to be part of the decision-making body. And so just a couple things that... Uh, I would highlight for you there. Secondly, I want to remind you Tuesday, November 2nd, is uh, our opportunity to vote, to let our voice be heard, and to choose who are going to be our servant leaders and our representatives. So I want to encourage you to do that, and to bring your faith with you to the polls. Let them inform your decision, do your homework, and, uh, and cast a, a good vote, and, um, and then pray for your leaders. This is what Scripture commends us to do. So I, would, I just remind you of that. And um, if there was ever a passage in Scripture that talks about God's sovereignty in the ordaining of authority and leadership, this morning's passage is certainly that, Genesis 40 and 41. And so if you want to just turn there and, and put your thumb in that this morning, uh, that's where we're going to be. And uh, I'll just open, open our time in prayer. Father, you do tell us in your word that there is, there is no authority except that which you have established. Uh, the leaders and the authorities uh, that are in, in position are there because you've, pl- you've placed them there. Um, and yet, Father, uh, you also give us a responsibility and, and us uh, as Americans have a unique privilege to be able to cast a vote uh, to that. So, Lord, help us to be um, responsible with the freedoms and the trust that has been given to us. Father, we do pray for our leaders, that they would uh, be wise in their governing, that they would think of uh, the people and their constituency, uh, that they would uh, truly be servant leaders. Lord, we ask for that. Uh, thank you for the message we have this morning uh, that affirms to us that it is in fact you uh, that is in control and, and that makes these decisions and places people in power and position and uh, for the, for the sake of, uh, of your people. Uh, so thank you for that reminder. Father, give us uh, attentiveness as we listen to your word and give us a submissive heart to the Holy Spirit as he would prompt each one of us. Uh, may we be willing to change in the areas that we need to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, if you turn to Genesis 40 and 41, um, the question I would ask for you as you're turning there is simply this. How do we deal with life's disappointments? How do you deal with life's disappointments, especially when they're deep, deep hurts, or they're long and sustained struggles? How do we handle that? How do we cope with it? Let me give you a couple examples and just sort of rummage around in some lives here if I could. What about when you don't get that job that you interviewed for? It seemed like a perfect fit. It seemed like everything was lined out for you just right and uh, you you, you did your best in the interview, but for some reason it, it wasn't presented to you. Maybe you're single and you're tired of it and you've been waiting for a long time for uh, that special someone that mom told you about and you're thinking that special someone got hit by a bus or is just perennially tardy and never showing up where they ought to be. But to be honest, it's a painful struggle. How do you deal with a persistent illness? Some ailment is still there. It's not right. Things aren't 100%. You're still struggling. You're uncertain about the future and if you will, in fact, find relief. Um, Maybe you've, you've been waiting for that pregnancy and for whatever reason it's just incredibly elusive uh, and you don't understand what the Lord is doing. Maybe you've got a business deal that's gone sour and you've, you've been working diligently at it but the motivation is gone and likely the profit and yet you have all the work ahead of you. How do you struggle through it? Maybe you have a loved one who's struggling spiritually. And you just continue to wait and to cry out, Lord, when will they get it? When will they get it? When will the truth of your word and your Holy Spirit break through to their heart? When will they know you as they ought to? Maybe you're involved in uh, some nasty legal matter. Somehow you've been drugged into it and it's ongoing and it's ugly, it's embarrassing, and you're just stuck there. And you're not sure what the outcome is going to be and uh, you're just weary of it. How do we deal with life's disappointments? How do we go through these, these things, these setbacks that absolutely challenge our faith and just mess with our lives and our sense of how we view ourselves and our sense of how we view God and His goodness? I, I think chapters 40 and 41 of Genesis give us great insight on how to do this. Uh, they show us how to do it on, a, on just a, an emotional level, of getting through the day-to-day issues, how we're going to deal with our emotions, how we're going to interact with people, and ultimately how we continue to relate to God in the midst of, of that which seems to give us questions about Him and His goodness. And overall, I think the, the lesson that we learn here, particularly from Joseph, is just this, uh, how the godly play the victim. That's the title of your message this morning. How are we to play the victim. How are we to, to be when these things occur? I want to give you a little bit of context. If you remember uh, last week, Joseph was falsely accused of assaulting Potiphar's wife. And uh, we sort of made the statement that uh, he was rewarded with prison for that. And I sincerely mean, I think that was a reward. As I, as I showed you, uh, Uh, Execution was definitely on the table for someone who was guilty of that crime. And if anybody would have doled out a swift and hard punishment, it would have been Potiphar, captain of the guard. But he didn't. He rewarded Joseph's integrity and his character and his hard work with a lighter sentence, which was prison. Uh, On the other hand, we have to know that this, this sentence, being in prison, was no easy sentence either. In fact, Psalm 105, 18 and 19 actually describe what it was like for Joseph while he was there, and it shows us that it was in fact hard. It says, They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. And that's specifically referring to Joseph, if you want to look up that psalm. It's a fascinating psalm. It was a hard sentence. Even though it was lighter than the death penalty that uh, was possible, uh, it was still hard. We also recognize that it's been almost 11 years since Joseph was sold into slavery and probably a couple more before he initially had these, these dreams of revelation that God had given him, showing him a position of leadership and prominence that he would one day have. 11 years. And he's gone from being free to being a slave to being incarcerated in a, a dungeon. And so by all appearances, he's moving backwards Further and further away from the realization of that which he believes God has told him. So his weight has been both hard and long, and going the wrong direction. So if anybody is uh, due here for a good pity party, you know, a quart of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and a fat spoon, the kind you serve food with, not eat food with. You know what I'm talking about? Well, Joseph's a due for one. But instead of accepting this victim status, he instead shows us how to suffer well, how to go through it well. And that's what we want to learn from him this morning. So first of all, I think the, the thing that we see, the first principle in the first eight verses uh, that we should learn from him is this, that we should choose to, to serve instead of to suffer. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, uh, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in, uh, in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker and the king of, uh, of the king of Egypt, were being held in prison, had a dream in this, uh, that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. So we learn here that Pharaoh is angry with these two individuals, the cupbearer and the baker. And I find it actually very interesting that it's these two guys that are put in prison. Okay, It almost gives us a, a clue or a hint that you know maybe Pharaoh woke up one night with indigestion or the stomach flu or something and said, alright, who's responsible for this? I want my cupbearer and my baker front and center. I woke up with the stomach flu last Sunday night and I want to tell you, if I could have pinpointed the person who made me ill and I had a dungeon at my disposal, I would have introduced the two. Uh, the cupbearer had an important job, uh, more than just Putting the cup in pharaoh 's hands more than just giving him his morning americano here, he had to taste it first, not for taste but for safety. He had to make sure that it wasn 't uh, poisoned and that in fact it would be safe for him to drink and he had to do that with uh, I believe his other food as well and and so because of this uh, sort of this important position that he had and his, his proximity to the monarch and uh, the trustworthiness overall, these cupbearers oftentimes would uh, gain a real position of, of uh, uh, prominence and would become sort of a confidant, and even at times have uh, some power and influence uh, in the region. Actually, uh, Nehemiah was himself a cupbearer, which you can chase down if you're interested in that. But in any case, Pharaoh sends these two guys to Potiphar's jun- dungeon where Joseph is actually being held. And because of his uh, faithfulness and his good nature over time, he himself has risen to the position of, of warden. And these men, who are in fact important prisoners, are trusted to Joseph. Another hint and indication and compliment to his character and his integrity, he was entrusted to the most capable man. We show, and this just shows us how well Joseph has suffered. He's not taken on the status of victim and the bowl of ice cream and the fat spoon. But he's suffered well under it. And he's done his work and he's shown his character and his trustworthiness and he continues to rise to positions of leadership. The Bible tells us that he attended them, that he served them. Uh, and I think that's important and that's, that's significance. Um, I think that the temptation for you and I is to, when life deals us disappointments or uncertainty or, uh, or flat out suffering, is we want to grab the ice cream and the spoon and play the victim. And just wallow in self-pity, and and have that pity party. And instead, I think Joseph shows us a remarkable alternative, which is simply this: to serve others. And he does it with distinction, to the point where he's continually promoted as he, as he does so. And some of you are already blanked over. You're thinking about ice cream and your favorite flavor. I can see it. I can see it in your eyes. Um, Joseph shows us this, this good approach instead. And, and the way he does it is just by being others-minded. Uh, for you and I, nothing makes a bad situation better than when we can take the attention off of ourselves and our own disappointments and instead focus our attention on somebody else. Um, you know that uh, you can't uh, tell yourself to stop thinking about something or to stop doing something. You have to have a replacement thought or a replacement meditation or a replacement whatever. Whatever. Uh, to take your emotional energy and, and direct it in a positive direction. Joseph shows us a way to do it, to be others-minded, to focus our attention on, on other people instead of just uh, stewing away in our own victimness. We need a replacement. And I, and I think he does it really well here and, and seems to show not, not just service in an obligatory way, but with a genuine care and a genuine concern for other people. Uh, we see this particularly by the way he he um observes his uh his prisoners and he observes the countenance on their face and knows that something's wrong i I kind of think this is a little bit funny too if I want you to just picture in your mind for a second, drop the lights, change the smells around you, the sounds now you 're in a dungeon, okay, think about it, feel it, hear it, see it, imagine it, put yourself there, and this man Joseph walks in and looks at you and says, why are you so sad? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> We're in a dungeon. Where are you? And uh, But he knows that there's something above this immediate circumstance that's going on. He's, he's attentive even to their countenance, to their facial expressions, to the sadness that seems to be uh, going on even beyond just their incarceration. He's truly attentive to them instead of being consumed with his own emotional state. What a great example of how to handle adverse circumstances. Not just doing our job well, but also being conscientious of others and focusing our energies upon them. So I guess that would be the first point of application. If you're dealing with some disappointment, discouragement in life, uh, put the spoon down, put the ice cream away. Focus your attention on other people. Secondly, I think the thing that Joseph shows us is he's God-honoring. He's God-honoring. Even in in the midst of this, he maintains a high and a reverent view of God in the midst of disappointment. Uh, Listen to what he says in verse 8. He's told, we both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. How amazing is it that Joseph is able to say this? of all of the things that would come to his mind or come right out of his heart here, my money would have been on something like, hey, dreams don't mean squat. I've had some dreams in my time about leadership, prominence, authority, reverence, and I'm in a prison. Or, who knows what dreams mean? Mean really. I've had some doozers in my day. Or, You want to hear about dreams. Let me tell you about my dreams. And to take the spotlight and to focus on him. All very natural reactions, I think. None of them are Joseph's. He instead maintains this high and reverent view of God. Don't interpretations belong to God? And then his heart to go one more step and say, Tell me your dreams. Let me listen to you. Let's put you in the spotlight and be attentive to your needs here. And so instead of being angry of God, he maintains this high view of him. I want to tell you as a pastor, something that I hear from time to time is, uh, is this phrase that I'm angry at God. And I believe a person who says that is honest and heartfelt and that's how they feel. And uh, I want to challenge that a little bit this morning as compassionately as I can, but I want to challenge that notion. And I'll go to my good theological friend, Dr. Phil, and his wonderful question. How's that working for you? How is being angry at God working for you? Uh, I want to tell you that directing your anger at God is one of the most just foolish and self-destructive things that you can do. And I think it shows a very low view of God and a very high view of self. And it sort of begs the question for me, who who do you think you are? It's as though a person is saying, I'm going to take a break from gravity for a while. With just no sense of this force or this being that is so much bigger than oneself. Uh, I want to tell you this. If your anger is directed at God, as long as it's directed at God, as long as you're angry at Him, you will be stuck in your sorrow and your disappointment and your grief. Being mad at God is the sure way to stay stuck in whatever circumstances has disappointed you. Instead, The alternative, the the biblical alternative that we see in the Psalms over and over and over again is is the honesty of anger and the full gamut of emotions. Despair, depression, highs and lows, absolute fury directed to God, not at Him. You see the difference? To Him. There's an aspect of trust in God to even say, This is how I feel. I am this angry. But instead of making him the object of our anger, we make him the confidant for our anger and our honesty and our emotions. And over and over again through the Psalms, we see this raw honesty and we see the little hook at the end of the Psalms that says, but God. Psalm 13 is one of my favorite. So the psalmist is just going through and pouring out his disappointments and all that life has dealt him. And at the end he says, but I will trust in your unfailing love, for you have been good to me. Instead of directing our anger at God, bring our anger to God. And Joseph, instead of shaking his fist at God, seems to be able to maintain this high view of him, this, this honor uh, to God, and he eventually finds deliverance from the very God who arranged his slavery, his injustice that he was dealt, and his incarceration. The final thing here that I see, or not the, the last thing, but in this section that we can learn from Joseph is in terms of how we uh, serve instead of suffer, is that we would know and use our spiritual gifts. We would know and use our spiritual gifts. Uh, Joseph knew intimately that God had given him the ability to understand and interpret dreams. Uh, And uh, when the opportunity came, he was just others-minded enough to, uh, to do that. The Bible tells us that each one of us has been given a spiritual gift. And it's not for our benefit. It's for the benefit of the body of Christ. He's given it to you as a trust... And you're responsible to the body of Christ and to the Lord for how it's used. But we all need it. The rest of us need what it is that God has built into you and entrusted to you. You have a supernatural ability given to you by God to do something you can't do on your own for the benefit of the body of Christ. And I need the gifts that you have because I don't have them all and you don't have them all. We all have one, at least one, and none of us has them all. But we depend upon one another so that these would be exercise so that we would be built up into maturity to the body of Christ and I have to tell you that I find nothing more fulfilling in my own life uh, than to use the spiritual gifts that God has entrusted to me when you're a part of that and you can say that there was a power in that act that did not come from me that was of the Lord and I got to be his vessel in that is one of the greatest elixirs that God has and if you don't know your spiritual gift you're missing out it is awesome and so I would encourage you to, to discover what your spiritual gift is. And I, I don't have time to go into that this morning. It's not the primary point of this message. But uh, I've given you on the back of your handout the four primary passages that deal with spiritual gifting. Uh, and So you can look through those. And I've also given you a link to a place where you can go and do a, sort of a, an online test, an inventory to help you discern what they are and, and how you might use those. So I would encourage you, uh, encourage you to do that. So life's disappointing. Instead, we choose to serve instead of suffer, being others-minded, God-honoring, knowing and using our spiritual gifts so that he is honored as we serve his people. Secondly, I think we ought to, and Joseph shows us this, that we ought to look for relief if we can. He certainly does this. Look at verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will, be, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness." Mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread, and the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat away your flesh. I imagine his face fell at the hearing of it. Now the third day was Potiphar's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph and he forgot him. Somebody get that man a blackberry, right? Right? The Lord gives Joseph this interpretation uh, and, and he faithfully uh, attends to the needs of these men and he ministers to them even at their point of sorrow and he gives them the interpretation and he is forgotten. And I want you to imagine a little bit with me the frustration that Joseph is feeling. Perhaps for the first time in life he is beginning to see the trajectory by which God would actually bring these dreams to fruition and give him this position of promise or provident or excuse me prominence and leadership and responsibility. He's probably been thinking all along that hey, I'm in Potiphar's house. He's an important guy. If I can just work my way to the top, that will be the path. That's how God will do it. And then he keeps moving backwards. And now I think he sees, "Ah, I have access to Pharaoh through these men." And he takes the opportunity to say something to them and makes this appeal, get me out of here. I don't deserve to be here. And so I think Joseph shows us two things really well. One, he suffers well, as we've already seen, but two, he looks for relief as there is opportunity for it. And I think in doing so, he does a remarkable thing because I think this looking for relief and this maintaining hope is in fact an incredible act of faith and a hard one at that. I think that maintaining hope in the midst of difficulty is some of the very hardest work that we do. Instead of just writing things off and say, that's it, I'm a victim, I'm bitter. But staying open to God may do something different yet. And I'll have the courage to continue to hope for it over time. But Joseph does this. He maintains hope and he looks for relief from his circumstances God has not made us for the purpose of suffering. Although he tells us clearly in his word that suffering is a reality that each one of us will experience. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.12 it says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. It will happen. 1 Peter commands us to to live in the steps of Jesus, to walk in his steps. And it's a very nice, you know, something you'd put on a Hallmark card. Except that, that passage is taken right out of a context of suffering. We will, as Christ suffered, follow in his steps. So it's a reality, but we find that throughout Scripture, the teaching really is that if we can gain relief from suffering and from these difficulties and disappointments, we should try to. The Apostle Paul prayed for deliverance from his thorn in the flesh. Uh, I, I'm not certain, but I, I maintain that that was uh, probably some kind of a physical or a health ailment. I, again, I'm not certain, but that's sort of my, uh, my inkling. And uh, he prayed that God would relieve him of that. And I believe if there was a competent surgeon that he could have gone to, I think he would have availed himself of the best medicine of the day. Uh, I think that was his heart. In Colossians, he also instructs slaves in a, in a just a startling way he says if you're a slave maintain the position in life where God has you continue to serve faithfully uh, your, your master but then he goes a step further to say but if you can gain your freedom do so do so. so Paul was being careful not to lead some revolution that would upset everything and sort of send the gospel backwards and so he wanted to, to keep some of these other issues uh, less the priority than the gospel itself but he did give the opportunity, if you can gain your freedom, do so. Get out of it. Jesus, himself, in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that death was right in front of him, prayed and asked, the God, if it's possible that this cup would pass for me, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. We're to suffer well when it comes. And I think it's very biblical to look for relief, if God would so direct us. Um, Remember that Joseph is in fact a teenager when he uh, first had his dreams. 17 when he was um, uh, sold into slavery. He's now approaching 30 years old. He's been holding on to these dreams for more than 11 years before he could see the fulfillment. And up to now, all he's gotten is setbacks. And even the distance between chapter 40 and 41, just that little tiny white space you see there, is another two years. Two years rolls off the tongue as we were just talking about it. But not when it's two years of your suffering on top of the eleven before that. What we can appreciate about Joseph here is his persistence. He's not only suffered well, but he's continued to do the very, very hard work of holding out hope and confidence in what the Lord has told him. Um, final piece here as we look for relief i think is simply this be willing to act be willing to act if god provides the opportunity be willing to act so long as it aligns with scripture and is thoroughly biblical and you sense the lord leading you to do it uh that joseph availed himself of the very pragmatic help that was available to him at the time hey you know pharaoh get me out jailbreak (laughs) let's get out of here um And I don't mean this to be scandalous or anything, but I I do want to say that it does not have to be miraculous for it to be God's leading in your life. God works in very rudimentary ways sometimes, okay? Very pragmatic ways. And as you have opportunity, avail yourself of them. As we go into chapter 41, the vantage point really changes here and we sort of get to back away and we pan back out of Joseph's life Uh, and out of just the the real personal stuff that he's dealing with, and we get to see the broader picture of what God is doing overall, in all of Egypt, with all these people, and with God's future people, our Jewish refugees who, again, are listening. And we get to see a big picture here that's just fascinating. And what we realize, sort of this primary principle of the next chapter, is simply this, that God's plan is his own promotion and not ours. And we'll come back to this in just a second here. We've got a lot of reading to do. So hang in here with me. 41, verse 1. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Ah, what a line. What a good guy. Pharaoh was uh, once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Notice Joseph's humble response here. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Skip down for the sake of time to verse 25 here. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, "The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven heads of grain uh, seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. seven years." Of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man, and put him in charge of the land of Egypt that pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the 7 years of abundance they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store the store up the grain under the authority of pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food this food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the 7 years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine The plan seemed good to pharaoh and to all his officials so pharaoh asked them can we find anyone like this man Uh, One in whom the Spirit is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. All right. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Uh, I need a drink. The temptation available to us here that I want to guard against is simply this, that we would read this and go, oh, whew, my, my theology is intact. Oh, boy, I'm glad things turned out okay. I can still say that God is good. Thank God Joseph got that promotion. Whew, that was a close one. The danger is that if we take that approach, that we're operating under the belief that God exists primarily to give us ease and affluence and benefit. And I believe this is, in fact, the great American theological fallacy. That God exists as a magic charm in our pocket to give us whatever it is that we want in life. That things would be a little better because we have a little God. Instead, what we see in this passage and throughout Scripture is that God's ultimate plan in the universe is his pursuit of his own glory. Not the ease and the affluence of our life. Not a little bit of benefit just for us. But God is primarily concerned about his own promotion and not ours. And I believe that God will test us and afflict us and put pressure on us at every point in our lives until we conform to that understanding. Jesus, or God is trying to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived his life for the glory of the Father. Which is what we are to do. In fact, I am amazed at the lengths that God will go through to show people that we are, in fact, absolutely dependent upon him. Something I believe we all have in common this morning as we sit here, though the issue may be different, that there is something, there is one thing at least, that we are wrestling with continually, struggling with. We don't have relief from it. It's not right. It's not the way we want it. We don't have control over it. It might be our finances. It might be our singleness. It might be a wayward child. It might be an addiction or an injustice or some health problem or some unforeseen crisis. I I don't know what it is. But I believe that God lovingly lovingly brings these things into our life to consistently turn our heart to Him to make Him the primary object of our affections and all of our energy in life that we would live our lives for Him and not for us. God is, after, he's, he is in the pursuit of His own glory not to make your life a little bit better. And we see that in this, in this passage over and over again and throughout Scripture. Uh, God tells us clearly in Isaiah, this is one of my favorite passages, that he will honor the one who will not steal his honor. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that's my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God is in the pursuit of his own glory, his own promotion. In Luke 18 we're told, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will will be exalted. And it turns out that Joseph is just this kind of man. When when the opportunity is presented to him, I hear you're a guy that can tell about dreams and make interpretations. Boy, he could just take that and say, yeah, I've been known to get one right from time to time. And instead he says, no, I can't. But God can do it. God will give you the answer to your dream. And it was just this kind of man that God felt like he could use. And so he ducked taking the glory for himself and instead put it right on his God. So don't envy the career advancement of Joseph here and think that, ah, that's the lesson. That's what I'm to pursue. If I just get everything right, God will give me that advancement. What we should instead celebrate is that Joseph learned to serve the Lord In whatever circumstances he was in. In prison or in the palace. He was a faithful man of integrity. Who served the Lord. Who pursued his glory and his honor. And not his own. God also, we learn here, that God blesses us to be a blessing. Uh, We are to be a conduit of ministry to this world. We're just here for a generation. Just for a season. We're not to be the final, ultimate recipient of whatever blessing God would give us. Just simply a conduit to pass on to others, to bring their attention to their need for a Savior. God blesses us to be a blessing. We're a conduit of ministry, not the ultimate recipients. And finally, we also see that God's timing is perfect, even if the pastor's is not. Uh, Read with me here in verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand on the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. The Lord's perfect timing the right man in the right place at the right time with an understanding of the seasons that would unfold, both good good and plenty and the seasons of drought and famine that would follow. And God perfectly timed and orchestrated everything so that he was there in the moment that he needed to be. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered Pharaoh's service. More than half his life he had been waiting to be the right man at the right place at the right time. More than half of his life. It's astounding. God's timing is perfect, even if it's very long. In in verses 51 and 52, uh, we get just one more, as if we didn't have enough on Joseph's character already. We get one more compliment to his character here in the naming of his children. Uh, Verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household the second son he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. After all that waiting, and after it finally occurred, he was able to be on the other side of it and say, God did it. It was his work. And now I'm on the other side of it. And I can rejoice in what he has accomplished. In closing, I just... uh, There's so much more we could say, uh, but only one service, so... uh, I wanted to just give you the words of Thomas Kempis here, I think, at the bottom, which I think are excellent. He who knows how to suffer best shall keep the greatest peace. Uh, life will be marked with suffering. If we're followers of Jesus, it'll be there. Uh, pray that you would do it well. Let's pray. Father, some of these things are just, these points, these principles that we learn are just so easy to say. Uh, They just roll off the tongue. We're so distant and removed from uh, Joseph's uh, personal experiences, and yet we have our own. Uh, And no doubt, Lord, there are people here this morning who are just absolutely gut-wrenched with some wound that won't heal, with something that's not right and not as it should be. And they're waiting and struggling in it. God, I I ask that you would help us uh, not play the victim, that we would take the attention off ourselves, that we would put it on others, that we would serve them, we would use the gifts that you've given us, that we would honor you as we do it. Uh, Father, I pray that we would also look for relief as we can, as you provide it, and that in the end, Lord, our lives would be characterized as men and women who live for you and for your honor and your glory and for not not our own. Give us strength to suffer well, and the courage to hold out hope. In Christ's name, amen.